Hey, first up, I want to say thank you to the Channel Zero Network for including me. I am now part of the Channel Zero Network. That is a global network of anarchist podcasts. I believe in organising polls or columns of power that exist outside of the state. That's what this whole grassroots organising politics, everyone getting together stuff is about. And that is as anarchist as it gets. So I'm very happy to be part of the family and I'll be plugging Channel Zero Network podcasts from here on out. This is Anarchist Prisoner Sean Swain. And my participation in the Final Straw radio show on the Channel Zero Network has earned me 1,297 pages of FBI files. Channel Zero Network. The truth is dangerous. Do you remember the good old days of the start of this pandemic? Remember the old salad days back when we knew where we stood and, you know, we stood together arm in arm? Look, it might be overstating it to say we knew where we stood. There was a degree, as I recall, of some uh, confusion, perhaps, but also, you know, we were optimistic. We were wet behind the ears and we had you know, doe eyes, we looked towards the future with hope in our hearts and, you know, optimistic tears in our eyes. We used to love it. We used to love it back at the start of the pandemic several years ago in uh, February, March. What I mean by that is that we, 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 we were interested in mutual aid we were scared but we were honest about our fear and we were wondering about very practical matters what are we going to do about our work what are we going to do about our money our bread how are we you know people's biggest concern is where i where do i get toilet paper in australia um you know in a practical daily sense apart from the whole how will i eat next month thing People's concerns were rooted in the practical. And then something seemed to change. Or well, it did for me anyway. Look, I, I've been exercising my fucking ass off. I've been having a good time, you know, making the most of it and trying to make myself useful. But I am a person who becomes preoccupied with shit cunts and what they're up to, as my years of anti-fascism will attest to. Any good anti-fascist or anti-fascist researcher worth their salt will admit that they are predispositioned to become 
preoccupied with what shit cunts are up to. And I have turned inexorably towards the proliferation of bullshit that conspiracy theorists are coming out with. I can't help it. And also, I must say, we are past the salad days and we are well in to the conspiracy theory salad days now. They're having their time. It is the time of 5G. Conspiracy theorists, by their very nature, fill in the gaps of what they don't understand with shit that sounds palatable to them, and they entertain the natural human uh, tendency to draw connections and parallels between uh, the little bits of information or misinformation that they have gathered together to draw conclusions. It's taking that thing and using that as a community building measure because, it, you know, there's strong community bonds inside conspiracy theory networks and, and cross-propagation between um, different spheres of conspiracy theories. I was always thinking to myself in the days approaching me releasing this podcast episode, well, you know, we're not doing special episodes for the coronavirus anymore. This is our new life now for the foreseeable future. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to start talking about what the losers are saying and getting into it. But I thought to myself, instead of me getting into the stupid and shit and toxic ideas that conspiracy theorists are up to, what I might do is look at those ideas through the lens of going through a small parade of various shit cunts that I either now or in the past have looked at or known in Australia. What I'm saying is this episode, I'm going to be looking at what a series of losers are saying about the coronavirus pandemic. We'll be looking at nationalists, at fascists, at career conspiracy theories, cooked crackpot wannabe politicians, um, Nazis, and other forms of conspiracy theorists, culminating in looking at some groups as well. Because it's 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 my belief that conspiracy theories are currently at their peak when they're collectivized. And so it seems to me that groups are where they have their real home at the moment on Facebook and such. We'll be getting into that this episode. There's a bit of a chess bug going around. Have I mentioned that? Did I mention that last episode? There really, really is. I'm just warning you, there's a bit of a chess bug going around. You might start to notice that um, there's a couple of changes that, that occur. My name's Tom Tanneke. This is the Pork and Feed the Birds. What we'll also be doing this episode is we'll be talking to Nathan Leach, the general manager of Barpadilla Foundation. We'll be talking to Nathan about the um, supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and community through COVID-19 fundraiser that they've started. Um, Barpadilla are legendary and Natty is my mate. Natty's got a few shocking revelations for us as to how coronavirus really started. You won't believe it. We'll also be speaking to Anthony Kelly, who's a member of um, and one of the founders of the Police Accountability Project, about all the fantastic things that our coppers are up to when it comes to policing the pandemic and how they're all definitely going to get back in their box 
once the pandemic's over, because that's within their nature. They love relinquishing fashy powers, don't they? And I'll also be hopefully um, communicating some thoughts from the minds of bats and pangolins to you. What does that mean? Well, look, I am in control of them. Um, several pangolins and uh, 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 several thousand bats. I'm recording live from the hull of the Ruby Princess, uh, from the captain's deck, actually. I sit atop an enormous pangolin steed um, that itself controls an army of smaller um, pangolins, and I mind control thousands of bats. I am the harbinger of coronavirus. I sit atop the Ruby Princess and we sail around Australia infecting the coasts. That is what I am now. But I also take time out once a fortnight to record my reflections. Uh, Dread harbinger of coronavirus, Tom Tanaki, reporting in The Pork and Feed the Birds. Where are they? Inside, inside. Inside, inside. Where are they? Inside, inside. Inside, inside. Inside, inside, inside. Inside, inside, inside. Inside, inside, inside. Inside, where you are though? I, I, me just a chill inside. Yeah. Netflix inside. Yeah. Mega box inside. Me and my wife a cuddle inside. <laughs> Food a cook inside. Curry chicken pan the stove, butter bean to the side. Grace, I great still a bun in a females. No time the fun can done. <laughs> Any man be a virus a wicked. If you not sanitize your hand, then you stupid. Make a TikTok dancing video now. Post it. Well, a vibes if your phone them not cook it. Boy, you not see Romish radio gone live. So me can't boring for the night. Nisha text me, say, bro, you a hide. Me say, no, you just by can't go inside. Where me there? Everyone, I'm here with Nathan Leach, who's the general manager at Barpadilla Foundation. Natty, how are you going? Good, mate. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How's your pandemic going? Yeah, it's um, it's pretty good. I'm pretty happy with how it's going. Feeling um, feeling very, very shut down. Yeah. You know, my my ambitions are, are definitely stunted. So I think um, job done. Job done. It's good, isn't it? There's actually um. We were just talking earlier. We had been yarning in the past about getting you on here in a more uh, regular basis, like as in like you and me yarning more regularly. But then, um, I mean, what do you say to the rumours that you bioengineered um, the coronavirus, the persistent rumours that you bioengineered the coronavirus to to get out of having those regular conversations with me? Well, I... I absolutely refute that I bioengineered it, but I definitely ate a bat. <laughs> you did, yeah. I have seen, I have, you know, I have visited the 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 site of the Bapadilla quarters as they were being built to to say hello, and I did notice a a few bats and pangolins sort of sort of wandering around the area. Was that anything to do with this? Well, I haven't. I don't know if that's actually what did it, but the the events definitely line up. Yeah, yeah, the timeline the timeline fits because that was that's right. Yeah, yeah, was that? I think that was late. Yeah, that was late last year. I went and said hi, and and then we all got the coronavirus in early twenty twenty. Yeah, the whole world got it. 
<laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then we ended up in the pandemic right now. Well, that's yeah. Well, look, um, I'm I'm glad we're talking now. I'm glad that no other um, you know, earth shattering catastrophe has happened to stop us from having this conversation now. Um, Nanny, can you tell me a bit about the Barpadilla Foundation? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so uh, we are an Aboriginal community controlled. We're a charity, a not-for-profit, um, and it's something that so Briggs, Adam Briggs and I have been good friends for years and sort of having these conversations for a long time um, parallel to his Bad Apples record label uh, development and the journey that went and, and is still going to create something that sits outside of the record label that can take on all of the you know, the community requests for programs and services and support, plus also go into a more ambitious model where, um, you know, emerging and established First Nations artists, you know, any, anyone in the creative industries uh, can have access to support and services and be, be encouraged and empowered to have uh, yeah, a career path and just actually have the, the knowledge access to the knowledge in terms of how you actually become an artist and how you maintain yourself as an artist in a professional sense yeah. and, you know, navigating all of the perils that are in the arts that most established artists know about and have learned the hard way. Um, so we're trying to just basically kick some doors open and keep them open so that our, our people who are already the most marginalised people aren't having to be double marginalised in a predominantly white sector. Yeah, and and I think historically, so before Barbadilla, or the need for for the foundation came about because there was a time where where bad apples was sort of inundated with requests or or with the, the the you know there was like this attempt to make initiatives like this, but at the end of the day, it is a it is a music label. And and th- so that's what th- there needed to be two sort of organisations that sat alongside each other. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah, that's roughly correct. Like there's um there's been well there's always calls and emails and messages coming through to the record label. Then and a lot of it just can't get serviced because there's not the staff or the capacity, and there's really just not a proper framework to run community programs. So that is something that gets funneled to us now, like all of the requests for public speaking and workshops and all that kind of stuff, which is part of our model that now just comes directly to us. And that's pretty much our main connection to the record label. We're, um, we're a standalone organisation. I mean, obviously our heritage is that we've sort of sprouted from Bad Apples with Briggs, but, yeah, we, we, we don't necessarily behave as a part of the record label, even though we're all, you know, connected. Yeah. It's it's very much two businesses. It's a standalone thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and this was in, meant to be around the time of the launch of Arpadilla, but then this whole then you bioengineered the, then you bioengineered the coronavirus just to yeah. get out of having regular conversations with me, and now now there's all these problems have been created. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I uh, I've completely sabotaged two years of hard work. Um, just just because I wanted to start again and rebuild everything that I've done. Yes, yeah. Because uh, that's really fun. Um, but basically, this around this time, 
we were supposed to be launching our studios that we've built down at Collingwood Yards at the Contemporary Arts Precincts on Johnson Street at the old Collingwood Tech School. Um, and we were supposed to be doing our big proper uh, launch event, which would have been a big, you know, a big concert uh, with performances and opportunities for people to, you know, come and see see everything we do and hear from us and enjoy themselves and all that. That's all sort of been put on ice now. It's all just completely sidelined along with the rest of our programs because um, we've been we've been delivering programs and um, services and opportunities for about a year already, mm. um, running lots of live music, live shows. We've got a huge focus on supporting um, women and girls in terms of trying to create artistic opportunities for them to actually make money, learn about professionalism, um, connect with mentors, uh, get promoted. You know, we're supporting a lot of people through trying to record music and get it out there, trying to create merchandise and get that out there, and also just to build confidence and create safe spaces for women and girls to be artists, you know, with, with no pressure, just, just to be artists, which is a, is a, seems to be a privilege a lot of the time in, in mainstream arts. Yeah. You know, you, you, you encounter a lot of egos and a lot of um, gatekeepers, and so we're trying to create a whole new pathway where we actually all rally around all these emerging artists and try and make sure that they can they can get where they want to go, not be influenced by a bunch of assholes that that tend to run things. Yeah, yeah, but but then the the pandemic has thrown a a, a spanner in the in the works for for the foundation. So mm. I can imagine that it's a hell of a lot harder for some of these struggling or up and coming Indigenous artists that that the, the foundation's initiatives are intended to help out. What kind of and 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 of course that's what's led to I assume to this COVID-19 appeal that the foundation's launched. What what struggles are young artists, would they be facing? I mean, what have you heard? Well, basically, we've got a, a stack of young artists who are making some income off doing regular shows, who are also working in hospitality or service industries, so they're their entire lives have just been stalled. Mm. And that's a common story. You know, that's that's a global story. But when we're talking about someone who is Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander and is also a woman, um, then they're just getting more marginalised than ever and experiencing, uh, you know, a need for a level of resilience that they perhaps weren't ready for, even though they're all strong and they're all doing great. Like, I don't want to make it sound like anyone's... Um, not up to the task of surviving right now, but definitely the loss is perhaps more significant for um, for people who have more to lose or who didn't quite have their feet in the door yet anyway in in the big world. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we had all of these uh, shows lined up. We had all of these partnership discussions in place with venues and we're running all these regular programs and basically they all just are gone. So those are financial opportunities for all these artists that we had booked and that we were talking to about booking um, that they've just lost and we can't offer them anything else at the moment apart yeah. from us <clears throat> trying to figure out 
you know, online streaming and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people are doing great work there. So we're not trying to impose ourselves too much in the live streaming stuff because there's people doing it really well as it is. Yeah. Um, and we firmly believe that we shouldn't be trying to create our own stuff if other people are already doing it. So we should be trying to support everyone else to do it and create you no know, good First Nations pathways in existing models, that kind of stuff. So yeah. we're, we're working really hard behind the scenes to try and get people involved in the opportunities that are coming up. But our, um, this fundraiser that we've just launched is a way of us to actually generate some money that can go to those most at need people because we've got, a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with um, Uncle Kutcher Edwards, who's, you know, uh, Melbourne, he's an elder, you know, he's a, but he's a, he's a music industry elder as well. And he said to me that he's got lots of mates that are, you know, they're on the breadline just because all, all the gigs are gone, you know, and there's no, there's no future. <laughs> we, we can't actually see when we're going to start being able to make money off music again. So, all these, you know, at-risk people, these older Aboriginal people who were, you know, performing regularly and, you know, having opportunities pop up regularly, their their entire life rhythm was just thrown off. And so we've got an opportunity now to raise some money that we can give straight to them or that we can partner with orgs such as Support Act to make sure that they get resourced to support First Peoples to actually get us through this stuff and try and get some good proactive, sustainable um, responses to it, like getting people into studios to record music that they can then sell and create new income streams. Or, yeah. you know, Obviously, there's the stuff like people need to live, they need money, so there's there's a big part of that going into why we want to raise these funds. But yeah, we're trying to find sustainable outcomes in everything we do. So if we can get some money to some artists and get them into some studios if that's safe, or, you know, or get them some equipment to do some home recording on their own and then support them to get some work mastered. You know, this is one of the types of things that we can provide, you know, if yeah, we can get I mean, it, together. Food, just eating and then having the space to be able to then do your art is, is it goes hand in hand, doesn't it? I mean, if you, you know, yeah. if the appeal provides that buffer for young people, you know, then, then, they can, they have the space, or they at least have the comfort or the full belly to then be able to produce art, right? Well, that's it. It's just security. Yeah. Yeah. So, where can people go and donate? What can people do? So, uh, we, you could search the hashtag. That'll probably find it the quickest way. So, it's hashtag FNC19Appeal. Mm hmm. Um, so if you search that, you'd find that if you went to Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, um, or you can find Barbadilla on Instagram and Facebook if you just search us up. So it's B-A-R-P-I-R-D-H-I-L-A Foundation. Um, yeah. And so there's all the information there. So we've got, we've got a campaign page on raisley.com and that's a, uh, that's a fundraising platform for charities and not-for-profits. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite easy to find, um, but I'm guessing that you'll be able to post a link along with this as well. 
I will. Yes, I'll be plugging it hard, and so people will be able to follow links from the the podcast description. Also from my page, I will be flogging it hard on there. So everyone just needs to have a look on there. I'll be making a donation soon myself, um, and I ask that everyone else listening to this do the same. Um, can I also ask, can we do something about the bats and the pangolins inside the, the, the foundation tech? Can we perhaps clear them out? Yeah, look, the horse is bolted there, mate. It's, um, <laughs> is I, it too I, late? Is it, yeah, sorry. Are you saying it's too yeah. late now? Well, I mean, you can't get more coronavirus, can you? <laughs> no, you can't. No, you know, you know what? You're right. You're right. And they're cute, I guess. They're cute. No, we'll leave them. Leave them. We'll have built up herd immunity to them by now, I suppose. So, so, so it'll it'll, it'll be it'll be cute. You know, I, I quite like pangolins. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, look, Andy, thank you so much for your time. Um, I hope again to speak to you soon. And I, but more importantly, I hope that the Barpadilla Foundation. Um, uh, is 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 manages to 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 launch successfully in spite of these trying times, and I hope that everyone donates to the appeal. Um, Natty, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Conspiracy flog will be popping in on is Blair Cottrell, old mate Blair. Blair, who's Blair? Blair's a ripped Nazi who, um, look, he's always posed as a patriot with varying degrees of success. Now he's lost all his success. He just doesn't even bother to hide the Nazi stuff anymore. That's fine. I'm glad that. Lack of success has made him honest with himself and with everyone else. He was a leading light of the Patriot movement in 2015 to 2017 before being banned from everything. And um, ever since that point, the fact that he's banned from everything is one of his favourite subjects to discuss ad nauseum. He had some very bad and toxic ideas and the general consensus was to uh remove him from public spheres. Now I don't mind that because his ideas really were pretty bad when he took the rare time to be honest about what his real ideas were. Um what's Blair got to say? <clears throat> and I quote What I do see in the near future is tough times for women. Women will lose their jobs first since they mostly work in admin, beauty, hospitality and waitressing. 
planning, luxury and lifestyle businesses, almost all of which are already closed. Women on their own will be poor and in real danger, not yet, but very soon. This will be a frightening reality for them. Single white women in particular, spelled by feminism and careerism, will have to depend almost entirely on government support packages, which won't last for long. When the state runs its coffers dry, as it inevitably will, these women will be in an extremely vulnerable position and will practically need a working partner to survive. COVID-19 is effectively killing feminism and the idea of the independent woman. Look guys, Blair bangs bits of wood together with his hands so he won't ever stop eating or like won't ever get sick from a virus. Nice one. Not like you bloody Sheila's in accounting. Blair got into being a carpenter's labourer through working for his dad at Cultural Construction and was probably shielded from the storm of like all the shitty press he got through his time as a leading light in the Patriot movement by the fact that he worked for his dad. And hey, that's nice for him. So I don't care too much about his life. But I just think it's a little rich that daddy's boy gets to gloat about all the real world consequences for people in other trades and such, given that he probably hasn't seen as much of a fair share of consequences for his own fucking actions as he probably should have. Like, yeah, he lost his bank account and the ABC said some bad things about him, like diddums, but generally he's been all right, even though he's been a shit cunt in public for years and very damaging to Australian life. Beyond Blair, this is the kind, like, the fuck that guy. This is the kind of individualist res response we expect from, I guess, like, nationalists and particularly from people who are terminally obsessed with themselves. They mock and resent welfare considerations. You know, like, double job seeker payments are only to be sought out by weak women and affect journalists or leftist academics. And meanwhile, fucking pro-woodbangers like him will stand back and laugh while the economy tanks. Anyway, we live in a society, bruh, and people like Blair become, actually become quite useless as calls to mutual aid grow stronger, I think. Because they, they focus on the chaos and they don't know how to process all of the effort, the lengths that people go to to help each other from that chaos. What I'm saying is that I think nationalists are generally sitting back eating popcorn and they're as useless as tits on a bull. I mean, in many senses, their authoritarian wet dream is being realised, just not in the set of circumstances that they thought it would be. And, and they're not happy about it. They're useless right now. They're not to be listened to. Let's go to another Blair quote. <clears throat> For at least 15 years, they demanded open borders, more refugees, more immigration, more diversity. They said travel restrictions are racist and people who disagree are neo-Nazis. They turned whole states into welfare ghettos, covered up spiking immigrant crime rates, slandered and censored their critics. But people now dying and losing their jobs en masse from an overseas virus is totally not their fault. Actually, we should just get all of our information on the virus from them. Let them tell us what to do and just believe everything they say. Oh, this is actually a pretty popular take from people like Blair, so I think it's worth uh, thinking about. 
It's framed. <laughs> this is framed as though the reason that Blair was always calling for bans on refugees and immigration and closed borders and the like was as like a public health measure, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Like, no, champ. If you recall, you're calling for those things because you're a national socialist and a white supremacist, not because you're worried about a virus. Remember, it must have slipped your mind, mate. There's a whole range of issues that this touches on, though, which are worth discussing. What we are entering into is a period of authoritarianism by virtue of necessity due to a pandemic. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to keep the coppers and the state held to account. Again, listen to Anthony Kelly later in the episode. We need to know that on the other end of this that they aren't going to continue playing stormtroopers. We need to hold the state to account for the way that their policies and policing will unduly target the same fucking vulnerable groups it's always done. We need to entrench the temporary gains of saying, like, you know, double welfare payments and such so that they aren't just temporary measures designed to prop up a wavering capitalist framework, but so that they remain and strengthen our nation's support network. There really is like this great potential in either direction for the for politics and the Overton window to shift right now. It's important for those of us who give a fuck to organise and protect the gains and ward off the fucking encroaching police state. And to be honest about the dangers here, and this disingenuous shit from a failed nationalist leader pretending that he had viruses in mind as a potential consequence when he talked about borders and the like, is just dumb social media point scoring on fucking Telegram. He's not, he never meant that. He never meant that. He can get fucked. Let's listen to one more quote for him. Credible sources have indicated to me at midnight tonight, government enacts Biosecurity Act. The army is already mobilised in each state. Woolworths and Coles are running low on 500 essential items. Data regarding COVID-19 positive patients is not being accurately recorded. Get ready. This is the last thing I'll say on old mate Blair Cottrell. These cunts have their hands on their dicks at times like this. That post was in mid-March before, you know, we, we gained some semblance of, of pandemic normalcy. Whether they see themselves as accelerationists or not, and I'll, I've got to hand it to him, Blair does kind of shit on the would-be militant accelerationist neo-Nazis, which, I, you know, I don't really don't mind. So that's not quite him. Regardless, all these cunts love seeing things fall to bits. They want the chaos because they're arrogant enough to think that the scattering of the chips will represent the fulfilment of the shit they've been saying for years. And that is fucking rubbish, really. This guy's ideas revolved around a UN-backed great replacement of migrants. It's not a pandemic leading to a police state. That isn't what they had in mind at all. I'll sit around eating fucking popcorn while things fall apart and honestly think their fucking wood banging or their trade will get them through. That won't help with mutual aid. They won't build or organise or resist against fucking nothing. All they are is walking distractions. I'm done talking about this cunt. I was done talking about him fucking ages ago. Best thing that ever happened to the flog was getting banned from it, if we think. Next up, we have David Hilton. 
David was a would-be academic who didn't get much of a chance to be an academic because his studies were interrupted by him getting doxxed by slack bastard. That was because David's double life was as Moses Apostaticus, writing far-right think pieces for publications like the Daily Caller. David tried to dox slack bastard back with no success before sort of vanishing for a bit. Look, David's a, a, a Christian white nationalist opinionista with a brown wife who holds grudges and writes shit poetry and shit articles. That's David in a nutshell. Um, considers himself a thinker. He does think, he just thinks shit stuff. I bring David up because he's written an article um, that uh, contains some conspiracies in it. Here's one. This thing was manufactured. There's no excuse for thinking it came from a pangolin eating bat soup in a Chinese wet market or whatever. Someone made it. Who? Why? What for? I don't have any inside footy on that, but let's go with what's publicly available information to see if we can figure it out. What can we piece together that might help us to find the likely culprit behind the plot to create a panic by using a plague to collapse the system? If only there was an elite insider who's made it clear he thinks the world needs to be reorganised according to his vision, has an interest in plague responses, and has the means to create a bug to implement his agenda. Well, what do you know? Bill Gates is literally obsessed about plagues and vaccines. He's been talking about it for years. In fact, he's been so on the money that he even stated in a 2019 Netflix documentary called The Next Pandemic that a coronavirus-like pandemic could start in a Chinese wet market and that the world was unprepared for it. I kid you not. Doesn't he know supervillains are meant to be, well, subtle? He's gone further than that though. In the video above, you'll see that the first point in Gates' thesis for why global pandemic responses are weak is that we lack centralised surveillance and data. He means people like him lack centralised surveillance and data about people like us. To address this, Bill and his wife have teamed up with a massive global vaccine provider called Gabby to push for a blockchain form of digital identity which will be used to track and monitor every single person on the planet. Anyway, that's all we need to hear from David Hilton. Thanks for bringing up the Bill Gates thing, mate. He didn't come up with it, but I'm glad he brought it up. Um, here's a quote from Rainer uh, Zittelman writing for Forbes. The search for culprits is an inevitable feature of every crisis, whether it is an epidemic natural disaster or economic crisis. In Europe in the Middle Ages and early modern period, between 40 and 60,000 people, mainly women, became victims of witch hunts. These witches were blamed for the spread of diseases, for failed harvests, for natural disasters, and for other negative events that people could not otherwise explain. Jews were also often accused. There were frequent claims that Jews went around poisoning wells. Some of these guys are still accusing Jews to this day. Hey, listen, just to, to acknowledge the material stuff, or at least to, to, to tackle that for a moment before I move on, um, the reason that Bill Gates knew about it is because we all fucking knew about it. Since SARS and MERS, we knew that the proliferation of bat coronaviruses would be, because of the natural nature of the coronavirus itself and its uncanny ability to jump from bat to human, very, very good at spreading, 
We always knew it could be a new or a combined form of coronavirus that would cause us the next pandemic. We've fucking known it for years. It's just that because the other pandemics were a bit of a fizzer by comparison to this one, certainly, in terms of their 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 um their their spread anyway, we gave up on the, the public funding for it after a while. Uh, it seems that governments, when there isn't a pandemic on, just sort of lose lose immediate interest. And perhaps if we had have really, really, really got behind the f- funding for the research into to dealing with coronavirus, then we might have been better placed to deal with uh, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. But we're not. So it's not a surprise that he knew about it. Many scientists knew about it. There just wasn't enough funding. There wasn't enough attention paid. There wasn't enough interest. And now, of course, by virtue of necessity, there is. But Bill Gates is primed to be blamed for this because he was already a favourite target of another well-organised conspiracy community, the anti-vaxxers. Because of his work with vaccines, it was no, no stretch for one paranoid community to bring his name up particularly given that he's been warning the world about pandemics for years and to pass him, I guess, along the fertile, you know, conspiracy pipeline. People are primed to make connections, like I said earlier in the podcast, to fill the gaps of things they don't get with their own misinformation or assumptions. They do so in particular when they're worried during periods of crisis. So they've made Bill a target. And that's sad. Bill funds work with vaccines. He doesn't make viruses. Academics, quote fingers like Hilton, should know better. They often actually do know better. Here's the thing. Some of them believe they're cleverer, and this is particularly the case with David Hilton, than all of their own readers and that they can use disinformation to their own ends. The fake news network is as loaded with these egomaniacs as it is with the dupes that spread the info. These, like, small-minded assholes who think that they can uh, take advantage of the broader Machiavellian gains to be seen through propagating shit that they know is not true. Because you've got people, and now that might be the case with um, uh, anyone who's won an election off the back of that, but then you get these... Um, these, these uh, uh, little Machiavellis and and they think that they can replicate those successes for themselves. Um, it's a breeding ground for egomaniacs. Um, they think it'll cause some domino effect t- taking down their enemies and opening the Overton window up to their benefit. All it is is grotesquely irresponsible and a real overreach. Um, Bill Gates is not responsible for the pandemic and I know that and you know that and so do the people who make it up. So fuck that guy. Anthony Kelly's part of the Police Accountability 
project. Hello, Anthony. How's your pandemic going? Oh, not bad at all. I'm surviving, and um, it's just busier than I would have uh, liked it, really. Yeah, of course. I suppose with with the work that you do, you, your work would be cut out for you at the moment, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's one of the things. Hey, it's it's diabolically complex. Um, you know, in a crisis, as we all know, it's multi multi layered and and all over the place. And um, when you layer this sort of you know haphazard um, discretionary policing on top of everything, um, is uh, and we're we're we've always been concerned about. Communities that are over policed, sections of Melbourne that are, you know, intensively policed, even at the best of times, and yet we layer this, uh, you know, huge array of new uh, and intrusive powers on the same police force, and uh, yeah, you've got this recipe for um, problems. And you, you know, you, 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 as you point out, we don't come into this with a blank slate, do we? I mean, we already have. A Vic poll that you know r- require the kind of monitoring that the Policy Accountability Project does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Different communities get policed very differently, and that's something that is borne out all around the world. There's so much data available on this uh, from police who disproportionately stop certain people because of the colour of their skin or the perceived ethnicity or their perceived religion or their perceived membership of a particular community. And therefore, um, yeah, we know that, that, uh, police, um, apply their powers really differently across, across place, you know, across Victoria. Uh, we've seen it in our data, in our cases where we've managed to get access to data that shows us that, you know, young people of African background are two and a half times more likely to be stopped. Uh, that was in a given area at a given time, but if we uh, extrapolate that across the state, we know that that, that sort of proves racial profiling in lots of ways. And uh, one of the things that we've been calling for for years now is for police to release data on who they stop, where, and why. And it's only then when we get when we get really comprehensive data, transparently analysed, that we get to see a real picture of what's going on. Yeah. Well, so we're in a pandemic now. What what cool new powers have the police, you know, at least in Victoria, been allocated? What are they now allowed to do? Well, it's a good question, really. I'm still trying to work it out myself. There are lawyers that are still trying to work it out. It's The powers stem from the state of emergency and stem from uh, Victoria's um, public health legislation, which allows the, um, the public health officer to make various directions. And then police are, very, are basically authorised officers to carry out those directions. And so we're all familiar with the stay-at-home restrictions under what's called Stage 3, uh, and Stage 3 is basically, you know, a, um, a communications tool that basically said that these are the Stage 3 restrictions, but that's not in the legislation or, or anything. Um, and the stay-at-home restrictions, you know, they only make up a few pages, uh, and they're basically stay at home where you can unless they've got these four uh, rationales, and we, as we all know, they include, you know, going out for exercise, going out for work or volunteer work, uh, going out for uh, caring reasons, compassionate reasons, and for going out for shopping. Um, but in the, the space in between those, you know, what that means, well, what is exercise, what is shopping, what is caring and compassion is open to a vast amount of interpretation. And, of course, everyone's picking up that the public and the police and even, you know, ministers and the 
chief public health officers are somewhat um, confused about what um, the details and the minutiae of all these um, restrictions on our lives. And and when you point out that there's open to interpretation uh, new policies or restrictions, and yet we've talked earlier about, you know, a history of racial profiling, then we can join the dots as to what their interpretation is then going to be. Huh? Yeah, so there's a there's a, a myriad pattern that's occurring with policing. So at one level, there's uh, the frustrating overreach. So, if, you know, people going about something that they consider to be okay under the current restrictions, they might be exercising. Uh, and then police might approach them and um, ask them, interrogate them about how far away they are from their house. There's no restrictions about how far away from the house. Um, about how, you know, there's, there was one report of a woman who was running around an oval and a female police officer approached her and asked why she wasn't at home and she said she was exercising and she said, okay, I'll let you go back after this lap. And the woman said, I've got another two kilometres to run. Why do I have to go back home? And that was totally up to the, the police officer who's designating what's appropriate number and extent of exercise. Uh, and there's countless cases of that that we're coming across and the media's picking up on and, and people are reporting. Um, so that's one thing, just that simple overreach. Uh, but then there's the, uh, the fact that some communities have intense numbers of police already uh, in there. Uh, there's higher levels of police, higher numbers of police, and police uh, are far more likely, as we know, to stop certain communities. People who look of African background, people of communities of colour, um, and they're more likely to have those sorts of overreaching um, encroachments on their on their lives, even if they're not, even if they're doing the right thing. And this is the problem that even if people are doing the right thing and police approach them, then there's more likelihood, particularly for young people for there to be some sort of altercation, some sort of issue because of that stop, that other charges come around, you know, offensive language, you know, or anything at all that, that, um, that um, people can get charged with on a normal level that only result if, only come about because the police have stopped them in the first place. Well, I've seen uh, I've seen in New South Wales, I'm, uh, Osman Faruqi on Twitter was um, analysing the data from the, the, the that had been released um, or that he could locate on who it is that has been charged or issued with fines so far, and it's overwhelmingly in the lower socioeconomic areas that, that these fines aren't being issued in wealthy areas in Sydney. So, again, join the dots, eh? Hey? Yeah, absolutely, and that's fantastic research. It's really good that he's doing that. It's, um, it's, it's creating a picture of what we would suspect and what we'd anticipate, and it's only when we start looking at that data that's available to us that we can we can get a sense of it. So one of our calls, of course, is for police to be very transparent about um, who they're stopping, where they're stopping it, and why, and why they're stopping people. So the New South Wales Police are releasing a little bit more information, the Victoria Police, yeah. but of the thousands of stops that police are making now as a result of COVID-19 or, or to police these restrictions, uh, police really need to be releasing that data and having it transparently and independently analysed so we can start to see patterns of um, disproportionate stop rates. And whether it's racism, whether it's you know biased policing or discriminatory policing, uh, we can't really determine until we see that sort of data um, and that whole you know the whole picture, the whole pattern. I've read the Policing the Pandemic piece on the Police Accountability Project site and I do recommend that everyone 
read it, but in, in it you call for a moratorium on certain offences. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we know it's critical that we reduce uh, contact with the criminal justice system at times like this, and that's a, that in itself is a public health measure. Uh, we know that there's been widespread calls across the world now for a decarceration approach for uh, for prisoners to be released into the into community, so that um, so that we can reduce the potential spread of coronavirus inside um, custodial centres inside prisons, which. Uh, all of us, all the medical health professionals are realising that if they were to uh, take hold, if the virus was to take hold in custodial settings, in detention centres and prisons, it would be disastrous. Uh, not only for the prisoners, but for the wider community. So so we, we make sure, we, we have to uh, make sure that we reduce prison populations rapidly as a, as a major public health measure as part of the um, our response to this virus. The other thing is that we need to stop people going into custodial settings. Yep. So, so anything the police can do to reduce their um, policing of minor, small uh, offences uh, is potentially is benefiting us all. And it's not, not about letting people off the hook. We're talking about policing that is just ordinary. Uh, like over in New York, for instance, have called for a, a halt to zero top you know, to uh, broken windows policing. Just policing everything, minor, minor traffic offences, minor uh, jaywalking, and um, everything they see. So we've got a, um, that's the same sort of call has been made in Australia now for police forces to to stop um, policing the minor stuff, uh, do everything they possibly can to reduce the likelihood that people are going to be arrested and put in custodial settings. And um, the worry again is that the sort of COVID nineteen policing that we've seen so far is that we're but not and police forces aren't doing that. They're still they're still um, um, still policing intensely, and that's that's something we need to reduce. Yeah, um, and of course, many people's longer term concern beyond all this is that once this pandemic dies down, we won't see the end of stormtrooper behaviour from Vicpol. I mean, particularly given that for some members of the community, as we've said, this is the way they've always behaved. What needs to happen? Do you think? to contain police powers longer term. Yeah, yeah. So definitely some of the emergency powers, most of the emergency powers the police are using have sunset clauses and they're limited time. So Victoria is only another couple of weeks to go and it's likely to be extended as the crisis continues. Okay. No one seems to know how long that's continues. If it goes on for months and months, uh, there's a danger of that sort of cultural norms and curfew policing being really normalised. So that's one danger that we as a society, as a community, come to expect uh, police to be um, this sort of all-pervasive force that keeps us in our homes and um, polices this, this um, weird curfew that we're all under. Um, so that's one danger. We, we become so used to it that it becomes normalised. The other danger is that some of the, the specific powers and practices the police are undertaking uh, become part of routine uh, their practice. And one of those things, for instance, we saw New South Wales Police, and we think they're doing it here in Victoria, is using number plate recognition technology uh, to determine if people are going on holidays, you know, are going on holidays over Easter. Right. And so this this big um, pattern of data that police forces now have because they can they can um, track our number plate um, through a whole variety of cameras. Most of them are based in police vehicles. Um, and that, that number plate uh, number is, of course, linked to our licence, our name and address. Yeah. 
So, so that provides a really um, all pervasive surveillance system um, across both across the states that uh, police can use for a whole variety of purposes, not just policing this these public health measures. measures. Um, and it's arguably that it goes beyond their um, powers to you know, restrict movement anyway. Yeah. But it's those sort of examples that I'm personally really worried about is those sort of policing tech, policing practices, uh, and policing approaches that become so prolific and used and, uh, you know, police get a sense of how powerful they are and they're more likely to use them in a greater number of circumstances. Anthony, what should people do if they want to communicate to you grievances or concerns about police behaviour during the pandemic? Well, great that you asked because we've got a, we've got a dedicated website called covidpolicing.org.au. It's national, so anywhere, anywhere in Australia we want to hear from folk, anyone who's been stopped or got a concern or knows of something that's disturbed them about the policing practices they've experienced or seen or witnessed. So the more data we get, the more reports the people make. Uh, it's backed up by a network of policing academics from universities or across Australia. Um, those reports, anecdotal as they are, provide a really valuable um, basis for um, giving us a sense of how policing is happening. And so sharing those that link, covidpolicing.org.au, and reporting everything that you see and hear about is really valuable. We can get a national picture of how policing is happening and what are the what are the harms that are resulting? We're going to be reporting on it regularly. Uh, media are really interested on it in it to uh, to see what's coming out of it, and it's something that advocates and, act- and activists across Australia can use to try and push back and um, put some boundaries on the policing that we're seeing. That's amazing. I'll definitely be putting a link to that in the description for the the podcast episode and plugging it through the site. Um, thank you so much, Anthony, for your time. Next up, we've got Eliahi Priest, who is a big-time conspiracy theorist. Um, he has been... Like this guy's been locked up and force injected by the, the 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 courts a couple of times because he's been deemed a fixated person by the federal police, I believe. I actually think LEA is very ill generally, and I really don't want to make mock of him, but I acknowledge also that he has a bizarrely significant following given his general fantasist nature and looseness. So um I I thought I'd check in on Eliahi. But then I was pleasantly surprised to find that LEA is denouncing her like 5G proponents. So in this context, he's actually somehow marginally more reliable than a lot of Facebookers are right now. Uh, a quote, at the moment, this is from LEA, at the moment, people are confusing facts with a hypothesis. I listened to this really long video and when she sat there saying the the, the 5G Proponents, you know, the 5G is the coronavirus people. 
that they have no basis in science for what they're saying. I watched him denounce the the the, the eugenicist allure of the coronavirus itself, and generally sat there and listened to him say a lot of things that I didn't think I'd hear coming out of his mouth, and I thought were were, were pleasantly surprising and a relief to me. A relief because he has the ears of a lot of conspiracy nuts, and that makes me happy that there's someone like that who they're hearing. Elia is more interested in trying to talk about the gauge the severity of the pandemic. He's not sure how severe it is, which I totally agree is so hard to gauge because testing has been so sketchy. There are blind spots. It's a fair thing to question. I I have seen, you know, I've wondered about this effect that sometimes deeply paranoid or crisis-like moments in history have on otherwise consistently deranged conspiracy figures. Like I remember back when David Icke, who to be fair, is currently leading the charge on this 5G shit. David Icke, however, became bizarrely lucid for a little while at the time of Donald Trump's election, railing against Trump for a while for his calculated Islamophobia and the like. And I thought, it's very strange. I think these figures may feel that the moment has met them in a certain sense that they are perhaps a little prepared to tone it down a bit at a time when others are going wild on the conspiracy fantasies because the level of crisis has met their otherwise delusional <laughs> level of, 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 you know, like uh, uh, narrative, fantasy narrative. It's strange. Who knows? Anyway, this is a guy who thinks, who he thinks he's personally taken down the government with hack attacks and he thinks Scott Morrison is terrified of him. So, you know, look, it's you know it's upside-down world when L.A. Priest is a voice of reason. But I'm not going to shit on him. I'm just going to say, L.A., keep telling all the other cookers to cook a little less, please. It's good work, and I'll listen to you more than I'll listen to a lot of other people. Okay, I'm really emboldened by L.A., so I went to have a look at Teresa Van Leeshout. Teresa is an un hinged racist who continues to run for state and local, local government positions with no success. Um, and, you know, she's anyone who's followed state local government rare Pokemon will know about this person. Emboldened by my success with LEA, I thought I'd check in with Teresa. Perhaps she's also an oasis of, 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 of unconventional calm. At a, a crisis moment like this. <clears throat> Here's what Teresa has to say. Seven years ago, I published what would happen with politicians' satanic 666 microchip and the rise of the Antichrist. Okay, Teresa. <laughs> Cheers for that. Next! Look around, everybody, mass up. Them non take check from coronavirus. Hand sanitizer, them a walk. Still non take check from coronavirus. You chopper them out, they bang and phone them enough. Me non take check from coronavirus. Yes. People do the badness, Lord, yo. Me still non take check. Heal me from far, youth. Me no wanna shake on. Right now the crowd thing, me a try to stay from. Corona like the world, like when them did lack of your gun. This is a serious situation. Them say, drink a lot of water. Vitamin C that you know fish water. And vitamin D try go get a lot of. And anything you touch, wash your hand after. Oi. It was at around this point, and I was about to start looking at Tom Barnett, who had that big viral video about um, 
how Vibe Chief causes the coronavirus. And this is someone who ran for parliament himself. And I was going to look at Arvid Yemeni saying it was a biological warfare waged by the CCP. And I was even going to look at Andrew Bolt, who was saying, oh, you know, there's evidence that it comes out of a lab in Wuhan and what have you. But I thought, I've got to stop looking at individual cookers because I, I, I want to, to look at the reality of how this conspiracy pandemic is being pushed by groups, egged on by media outlets and bot armies. It's like collectivised lunacy now at its finest. It's not really led by individuals so much. It's propelled by media and the like, but it's the, the, the scariest places that you can go right now are into groups. And I have looked at groups. There's Stop 5G Australia, but there's also ones in New Zealand as well, and I have been watching them. And in those groups, don't worry about trying to get rich for their videos. They are making a career out of this. This is people, this is your fucking auntie, literally talking about blowing up 5G towers. That has already been happening. It's happened in the UK. It will continue to happen. These are people who are being convinced at a time of crisis to undertake guerrilla or terrorist warfare, and they don't know what that's going to, what consequences that's going to cause for them. This is not harmless disinformation. It can lead to the uninformed members of those groups, your auntie, being targeted as terrorists in the context of, context of states greatly increasing police powers to manage the pandemic. People are completely unaware of what they're getting involved in. Like these are low security groups legit talking about blowing up towers, terrorist campaigns, and your auntie is getting in there, I promise you. Do you know what the state do to people like that? I'll tell you who doesn't know, your fucking auntie. And I know she shits you on Facebook, but she's in there. And she's being radicalised. She doesn't realise it, but she's being radicalised on, like, a rate that, that fucking white nationalist terrorists should be eating their heart out right now. It's terrifying. Here's the thing, though. Here's the other real danger. It will also lead to people getting sick. People who don't believe in coronavirus will not adhere to social distancing restrictions. They don't believe in them. They think it's the fucking towers, the 5G towers. There can be a significant body count attached to this disinformation. And I was going to sit on here and talk about the material arguments against 5G, but I don't think my audience need to know them so much not right now. I don't need to convince you of them, but I do need to convince you of the importance of arguing with your immediate networks of people around you because if they cut you off, they won't hear anybody arguing with them. Here's a conspiracy theory for you, and I want to give you one because people need gaps that they need to fill all this disinformation in with. Here's the thing. Here's a conspiracy theory for your fucking auntie. Russian, Russian disinformation campaigns run through media like RT and online agent provocateurs with large platforms that aim to destabilise foreign states by focusing their people's paranoia 
on the very healthcare systems that keep them alive and the next level communication networks that will keep them in touch with each other and informed. Is that a palatable conspiracy theory? Or is that not fun enough? Are the towers a bit more fun to yarn about, perhaps? Or maybe your auntie just doesn't know. We need to be telling your auntie about that. We need to be telling the conspiracy theorists and the scared and terrified people around us what may really be going on. Because it's a lot more interesting than this made-up shit about towers. I stand like a grim, plague-riddled Kate Winslet at the very front of the Ruby Princess. My arms are wide open. There is no Leonardo DiCaprio behind me, but rather there are scores of bats hanging off my arms. Underneath me there stands an enormous pangolin with plague-green eyes. It leans over the hull of the Ruby Princess. We stare down at Port Phillip Bay. The enormous pangolin spits a bright green jet stream into the bay. It is corona fluid. Look out for me on the shores, Australia. I will be there and my plague hulk and my armies of bats. We are coming for you. Thank you. If you believe in what I do, <coughs> not the plague stuff, but the pork and feed the birds or the videos or the articles. Can you please support me on Patreon? It's not any more important than supporting yourself during a fucking pandemic. And it's not any more important than any of the other causes like the Barbadilla Foundation's fundraiser or any of the variety of things that, 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 that I will flog now or be flogging in the future as activist causes. But it would really, really help me. I along with many others are in precarious situations and <laughs> with the pandemic. And if you are not, then I'd really, really appreciate your support. And it will go straight back into me doing more and more of what I do.